Well, if you were to do an honest gut feeling assessment of the, of the church today, specifically I'm, I'm talking about the church maybe in the, in the West, would you come away saying that the church, again, thinking specifically within American Western culture, would you say that it's growing, is it plateauing, or is it in decline? So again, just, this is just an honest gut feeling assessment that you're taking in your seats there. Now, and I would think that most of us would say it, it's, probably, it's definitely not growing in the West. There's pockets of growth with local churches, but by and large, the majority of churches are not seeing growth from new believers. And so then the question, okay, is it, is it plateauing? Is it in decline? We could maybe go either way sitting here without knowing all the statistics, all the facts of, of what's going on in our, in our culture today. But statistically, since about the mid-1970s, the church and, and really most mainline denominations in the West have been in decline. For the first time in about two centuries, since the colonial days, the trend changed because up to about the 1970s, the, the trend was that the church was continuing to grow and increase. But something shifted in, in the cultural makeup of the church that began to reverse its impact and its influence in society for the first time in, in two centuries. Now, since that time, about mid-70s, early mid-70s, there's been numerous studies and there's been lots of books written to try and diagnose uh, the, the problem. What is happening? How did the church begin to lose its voice and its influence in culture? Now, this isn't going to be a, a sermon about evaluating all of, all of the issues within the church, but, but I do believe it's one that, that draws us to a call to come back to what, 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 what gave the church of Jesus Christ its voice and its influence in the first place, and its voice and its influence in people's lives. Now, now what I mean by, by that? Well, in 1972, a book was written by a, a man named Dean Kelly. He was a, he was a legal scholar. He wasn't a, a theological conservative, yet he kept hearing it those, in those days that he kept hearing the, the same excuse being given from church leaders for the reason for the decline in the church all of a sudden. And the, the excuse that was being given during that day was that people just aren't religious anymore. That was the excuse that most church leaders were giving for the, the reason for the decline all of a sudden. And Kelly, evaluating that and hearing that, said that that, that can't be the reason. That can't be the reason for, when, for, for, for two centuries in American culture when the church was, was, was growing. Why, why all of a sudden was there just a stop in this reverse course? And so he set out to... to Look at the solution. Look at the issue. What was going on? And so Kelly, as just an observer of the culture and an observer of the church, he began to notice this, this shift in teaching and in philosophy and, and in mission. Yeah, yeah, church or church, uh, American culture, Western culture shifts and changes all the time. But what he was noticing that within human beings, the deep questions of the soul still remain. And he began to notice that the, that the church was failing and was not answering any longer those deep, longing questions. So, so he wrote in this book, he said that the, uh, the appeal of religion was that it, it provided largest-scale meanings. He said these are not the genuine but, but small-scale meanings, such as helping others in the neighborhood or volunteering for a good cause. He says rather largest-scale meanings enable people to face suffering and death with confidence and hope and to, and to seek the long-term common good, making sacrifices for it, all because you know you are part of a, a cosmic purpose. 
The only largest scale meanings that seem suitable to produce such results are those offered and validated by religion. So he argued that that any church that was was growing was one that was focusing on on mainly answering the the deepest meanings, the deepest questions on spiritual needs, that was addressing supernatural, largest scale, cosmic meaning questions, meaning the reality of God, the truth of Jesus' resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit for inward change. The efficacy of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. The eventual arrival of the, the kingdom of God. But he was noticing that the majority of churches were beginning to drift away from these core, essential truths that were found in God's word. Churches either began to adapt to modern secular thought, whereas they, they began to look more and more like the world around them and the culture around them, rather than looking like an outpost of the kingdom of God. Or, on the other side of the pendulum, churches began to only focus on peripheral issues, secondary issues, non-primary issues. And so the preaching and teaching in those churches was not centered on the gospel and the hope that's found in Jesus Christ as the hope for all of humanity. It wasn't focused on answering deep questions of the soul, but became more moralistic in their practice. Meaning that some of these churches were, were saying that if you're a Christian, you're just gonna, you're gonna look a certain way, dress a certain way, behave a certain way, and the list went on, and churches began to drift in that day into either liberalism or moralism or legalism. Many liberal churches rejected the, the supernatural, and so these churches were denying the power of God the Spirit's work in the human heart, the deity and the resurrection of Christ, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the sovereignty of God over all of life. Legalistic churches would say they maybe believed those truths, but they often bypassed the teaching of them and assumed the gospel, assumed that people already know those things, and they just went right to teaching moralism that was devoid of the power of God to bring about a new heart and regeneration. So soon afterward, the, the church... Religion became more and more associated with political parties rather than Christ himself. We've probably seen that amped up and put into overdrive even within just the last decade or so. Churches today, Christians today are more identified by which political aisle they, they fall into rather than living as followers of Jesus and as citizens of heaven, as salt and light in the world. But yet what still remains through all the the shifting and changing of of cultures is the deep questions, are the deep questions of the soul that we have as just human beings. Is Is there a creator God that I'm accountable to? What's the purpose and meaning of my life? How do I handle suffering? How do I handle death and destruction? Is there life after death, or is this all there is? Why is there evil in the world if God is good? Is there any purpose to any of this? How should I live in such a way that gives meaning to my life? I know I'm broken. Is there any hope of any healing? Or maybe this question, why doesn't anything seem to satisfy? Those are large-scale meaning questions, and culture is not equipped to answer them. They try, but they can't answer them. At least they can't answer them in any way that's going to bring any lasting or true solution. And and when the church begins to look more like the culture, the church began to then fail to answer these questions as well. And so people began to look at the church as as kind of pointless. What's the point? Well, they just want my time and my money. Why do I need to give up an hour of my Sunday if I can just join a political party and do the exact same thing that they're saying? 
right? The church began to lose its voice because it forgot its mission. And it stopped answering those deep questions of the soul that we have. Jesus' interaction here in Mark 12 with the Sadducees, to be honest, is going to be something that, that we're likely to encounter today. Skepticism. A rejection of the supernatural, a rejection of, of, of who God is and the power of God. And how we respond as believers to skepticism and to the denial or mockery of the supernatural will either push people further away from the goodness of Christ or it's going to draw them to think more deeply. For them to then long for it to be true themselves. And then we're able to show them how Jesus is the answer and the hope that their souls long for. You see, I think over the years, the church, because of the, the decline of moralism within our culture, which we clearly see, and the, and the decay in our culture of God's good design for human beings, we've, we've, we've become um, better debaters. We've, we've gotten better at maybe even apologetics, right? And so, so we know or have gotten better at knowing maybe what God's word says in certain cultural or social issues. And so we can boldly declare those truths, whether through social media posts or through protests or, or just interactions with our friends or coworkers. And, and, and don't misunderstand me. We need to know God's word. We need to be students of it. We need to know what is truth in the midst of a world that, that truth is just relative. It's all over the map. We need to know what truth is, and we need to be shaped by it and led by it. We need to know, as the church, as believers, we need to know doctrine. But, but I want to propose as well that, that the church also needs to learn how to be good storytellers. The Bible is the story of God. It's a story of his greatness, his faithfulness, his love. It's a story of, of his redemption, of broken rebels through sacrifice, through, through great sacrifice and loss. It, it's a story that, that, that ends, quote-unquote, with, with a future resurrection and, and the removal of everything that's broken and fractured in the world. It's a story that sees the, the death of death. It's a story of a future hope where those who trust in Christ through faith alone will live in perfect joy and peace and harmony forever and ever with him, with their creator. And so what I mean by becoming better storytellers is that we want to we share the hope of Christ, the hope of redemption, the hope of this future resurrection with those who disbelieve in such a way that, that though they may reject it, though they may deny it, Though they can't reconcile with it, they're going to wish and long that it's true what we say. And then, then we can come in and we can show them how Jesus is the answer to what their souls long for. It was Blaise Pascal who centuries ago said this. He said, men, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might be true. To cure that, we have to begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason that it is worthy of reverence and should be given respect. Next, it should be made lovable, should make them wish it were true, then show that it is indeed true. Don't, don't our hearts here long for an ache for meaning and for redemption and for healing and for hope and eternal life? Is that not what has gathered us as the church today to, to gather together to sing and to worship as we sing these songs of truth? Do our, not, do our hearts like stir with affection because we've seen this and we've experienced this truth in Christ alone? See, from this text, we see Jesus answer a, a deep question of the soul. 
He's answering the question of, of eternity. He's answering the question of, of life after death. It's, it's even a question of, of belonging and, and hope. And we see in Jesus' interaction with these Sadducees that those who belong to Jesus will experience a future resurrection from the dead. That those who have faith and faith alone in Christ alone will find one day lasting fulfillment and joy with Christ forever. This is eternal life. A shortened and maybe more memorable way to say it may be this, that because Christ is risen, we will rise. So jumping into the text, we, we see today here as he's dealing with this, this religious group, he's dealing now with a new set of religious leaders. This time it's the, the Sadducees. So in Mark 12, 18, you see the Sadducees, it says they came to him and they, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. The Sadducees were, were a relatively small sect of religious leaders, but they were really influential both religiously and politically in their day. They, they were a group of men, as we see in, in, uh, in this text as well, but they were a group of men that were only considered the books of Moses as authoritative, and therefore they were rejecting the rest of, of Scripture. As we see in verse 18, they rejected a specific doctrine that Jesus had talked about, the doctrine of the resurrection. If we went to the book of Acts, we'd see a little bit more of what they denied as well. In Acts 23, verse 8, it also tells us that they didn't believe in angels or demons, basically anything supernatural they were rejecting. So their basic belief, this group of, of, of religious leaders, was that almost like what is is what is. Right? This is what we can see, feel, taste, touch. That's, that's reality. That's all there is. Stop looking for more. Right? And so that was how they viewed the world. There is no life after death. There is no future resurrection. There is no such thing as the supernatural, things that go, go beyond us, that are greater than, than us and what we can perceive and conceive. They, they weren't looking for a future Messiah who would reign forever. They rejected all of that. They believed the scriptures only taught them how to behave and how to live for what is in the present, and then you die. Right? They were a really chipper, chipper group of people to be around. In fact, First century historian Josephus actually writes about this group of people, and he actually wrote of the Sadducees that they were rather boorish in their behavior. Well, yeah, they're, they're not living for anything that's beyond them. They're living for right now, what they can see, feel, taste, touch. That's it. And so Josephus, in the first century, knowing this group of people, writes they're rather boorish in their behavior, and in their interactions with their peers, they were as rude as aliens, is how he said it. And so this group of leaders, they're, they're coming to Jesus now with a scenario. It's most likely a, a scenario that they've used a bunch of times before on, on other people that believe in the resurrection, this ridiculous idea that there's life after death. And so they've concocted this scenario and probably used it multiple times on others to trip them up, to show them what you believe is ridiculous, this future resurrection. It's ridiculous to believe that, to think that. Eternal life, that's ridiculous. Let me give you a scenario to show the inadequacy of what you believe and how foolish you look. It's most likely a scenario that, that, that worked to trip people up, which is why they're using it here on Jesus. Remember, if you've been with us last few weeks, right, we're seeing group after group after group coming to Jesus using their best ammunition to try and trip them up, and they keep coming back after their interaction with Jesus with their tail between their legs, and so now it's the Sadducees' turn, right? Now they're looking and saying, okay, we're going to give this a try. And I'm, I'm sure, again, like I said, they're using this scenario that they've probably used and they've seen it work 
on others. They, they maybe even used it on the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. Maybe they've seen it trip them up, and they're like, we're going to use this one. This is our silver bullets. It's almost like the Sadducees are looking at all the others who are coming back with their tails between their legs saying, all right, guys, we got this one. Because it's worked on you, it'll work on him. So they come to Jesus again with their, with their minds already made up, just like the others who have come to Jesus before them. Like the, 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 they're coming to Jesus not having any real intention of, of learning and listening but only of trying to confuse and destroy him. They're coming to Jesus in their self-righteousness. They're coming to Jesus in their arrogance. We've got it figured out. You're a fool. And let me show you how foolish you are in front of everybody. And the, and the question that they pose and the scenario they unfold is, is one Jesus is going to use to push back on theological error, but, but also it's going to be one in which he's going to use to draw those that are listening to this interaction between the two to a future hope in a glorious resurrection. See, though the Sadducees would, would walk away from this encounter defeated, just like everyone who's trying to trip him up walk away defeated, Mark's recording this exchange in his gospel to draw men and women's hearts to, to not only the resurrection of Christ, but also to the future resurrection for those who hope in Christ. So they come to him with this question in verse 18, and then we see the scenario begin to be laid out in verse 19. So he says, they say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a, a man, man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take out the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So here's the scenario. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now the law that they're referring to in verse 19 is explained in Deuteronomy 25. So Moses wrote Deuteronomy, and so here's what this, this law, this command was given to the people that they're, they're referencing here. So Moses says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now I get it. Us reading that in 21st century Western culture, that seems odd. That's an odd command, an odd law. But understand back then, the, the carrying on of the family name was vitally important. Vitally important. And, and this was also a way in which God was seeking to provide care for the widow who had just lost her husband without any heir to provide for or carry on the family name. This was a, a big deal in that culture. So basically, the, what, what Moses was saying is that a, if a husband dies without, without any son, then, then his brother, the, the, the man's brother, if he was unmarried, would then marry the widow and produce a child that would then legally be recognized as the son of the dead husband, the, the dead brother. It, it was a way that, that God provided here to carry on the family name and to provide care for the widow. Now, if you're familiar uh, with, the, with the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, you'll see this played out between her and Boaz. As you read those, those few chapters just in, in the book of Ruth, you see Boaz is referred to as a, a redeemer, of the family is, is the way it's used there. 
It was a redeemer of the family that in the end he, he marries Ruth since her husband died without leaving an heir for her. So we see this throughout the scripture kind of in, in different pockets lived out. So it's seen and known, this command is seen and known among the Jewish people. So the Sadducees see this as an opportunity to look at in, in their minds the absurdity of the resurrection. And so, so they create amongst themselves this, this absurd scenario of a wife who, this woman who marries seven different men and all of them leave her without an heir. And so, so they create this scenario and then the big gotcha question before Jesus where they're like, he's not going to be able to answer this, is, is they say, okay, Jesus in the resurrection and you can hear their sarcasm in their voices, right? In the resurrection, Jesus, when they all rise again, whose wife will she be? Right? She had, she had seven husbands. Who she belonged to. And so here's where we see Jesus begin to push back on theological error. He's addressing theological error. It's clear theological error. And the problem that, that human beings face is we want to, and this is what the Sadducees are doing, They're, they want to put God in a box. They want to... They contain him. They want to be able to, in a way, explain him or define him in a way that makes sense to them. It's what we all want to do. We, we want to be able to explain God, define him, control him, contain him. Because deep down, the, the problem of the human heart is we're self-centered. Right? We, we look at the universe in our default state as human beings, and we look at the universe as something that is, is meant to revolve around us. And so our, our default setting is that, is that we're uppermost in our own thoughts and our own affections. And so the Sadducees are saying, because the supernatural doesn't make sense to us, because the resurrection doesn't make any logical sense to us, because we can't conceive this, perceive this, understand this, because it's beyond anything we can comprehend, they just say it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist because I can't fathom what that is. It doesn't exist. Do you see how they're making themselves the authority on what's true and what isn't true? And, and they're going to read the scriptures then in such a way that's going to make it bend to their will, what they want. So they, they come to God's word with already this preconceived idea and this preconceived belief. And then they read their belief into the scriptures rather than looking at the scriptures with fresh eyes to see what does it say and I need to bend to what it says. I need to be shaped by what Scripture says. And so Jesus hears this scenario, and what's he say in verse 24? He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? <laughs> because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? So here's, here's what Jesus said in response. And, and you know that, that this statement that he makes them would have ticked the Sadducees off. Because he's saying the one thing, <laughs> Sadducees, the one thing that you claim to be experts at, the one thing you've devoted your life toward is the, the understanding and the study of the scriptures. The one thing you say you know back and forth, front and forward, like it says you, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. What you claim to know best, you know the least. And because you don't know the scriptures, then you don't know who God is because God's word reveals who God is. Misunderstanding scripture will always lead to misunderstanding God. R.C. Sproul has said once before that everyone is a, a theologian, meaning everyone has some sort of, of understanding or belief about who God is. Even the person who says God does not exist is, a, is making a theological statement. So the question for all of us to answer is, is our theology right or is it wrong? 
The Sadducees were theologians, but their theology was wrong. And Jesus addresses it, corrects theological error by taking them to God's word. And as we'll see in just a second, but before we do, it's, it's worth even pausing here for just a second to dwell on Jesus' words to the Sadducees here. He, he's saying if, if you don't know God's word, if you don't know God's word, then, then you will not know God as he truly is. And if we do not know God as he truly is, then our worship of God, our pursuit of God, our delight of God, our faith in God is going to be stunted. It's going to be stunted because we're not going to be sharing in in the beauty and the glory and the holiness of God in a way that's going to draw men's hearts to delight in him. We're not going to know him. The Sadducees had had such a, a truncated view of God's power, and because of it, they missed him and didn't get to experience the glory of God. They, they, were, they were followers of the books of Moses, right? The books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the books of Moses, if, if you're unfamiliar with what they are. First five books of our Old Testament. They followed these books. And so they would have, as, as Sadducees, as studiers of the books of the law, they would have known what Genesis 1 and 2 say, right? They, they read Genesis 1 and 2, and they, they read of the creation of the universe by a God who creates out of nothing, right? Out of nothing, and yet they couldn't comprehend a God who can create everything out of nothing and also has the power over death. That, that there will be a future resurrection. So, so they would say, yes, God created out of nothing, but yet he can't reign over, over death. There's no resurrection. That's ridiculous. See, they, they missed him because they, they wanted to be the center of the universe. They missed him because of, of things too hard for them to fathom. And so they ignored or denied the power of God because they were not seeing God as he was being revealed to them through his word. And so we've got to ask, do you know God's word? Are you shaped by it? Are you, or, or do your preconceived views seek to shape your reading on, and understanding of it? Do we come to God's word with what we already think we know and read that into it? Or do we say, God, you teach me. I want to see you. I want to, I want to behold wonders that my mind can't fathom because this is who you are. God is bigger than what our minds can comprehend, and that's a really, really good thing. The very fact that I can't fully understand all that he is is what makes him God. And it, it, like I, I, I think of myself as someone pretty special. I think of myself as someone pretty smart, someone pretty educated, but in the end, I'm not that smart. I'm not that special. And so if, if I could fully grasp who God is, the ins and outs of everything that makes him God, there would be nothing that would draw me to him. Because all I would see is someone that's kind of like me. That's, that's not really going to draw me too much to his greatness, his grandeur. So the fact that we can't fully comprehend who God is is a really, really good thing. Because that means that every attribute about God is even grander than what we think or know. It means that that we know that God is loving. We've sung about his love today. But but the fact that we can't even comprehend the fullness of who God is means that his love is is more extravagant than even what our hearts can comprehend. That his faithfulness is more extravagant than what our hearts can comprehend. That his mercy and his grace are more extravagant than what our hearts can comprehend. That his justice is more extravagant than what our hearts can even comprehend. Does God reign over both life and death? Absolutely. Can can he meet the deepest needs and longings of your soul? Absolutely. Are we made to live forever? 
Yes. Because of, because of Christ, death does not have the final say in our lives. See, this is what draws us to him. This is what draws us to the grandeur of who he is. Do we grasp all of that? No. But that's what keeps my heart stirring with more affection for him. Like, I want to know more about this God who has an infinite, endless supply of, of grandeur and greatness and holiness and majesty to behold and study and to know. This idea, this reality that we're going to be spent all of eternity still learning about the depths of how rich and gracious and merciful and forgiving and awesome he is. That draws us to him. That's what draws us into even verse 25, this future hope. This future hope that, that Jesus is talking about. In verse 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I'll say it again. If God can create everything out of nothing, then a future resurrection is not beyond his power or his ability. Whether we realize it or, or not, all of us long for this, this future hope. It's woven into the, the fabric of our DNA. It's, 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 it's the very reason why every fairy, fairy tale ends with the, the prince and the princess riding off into the sunset, living happily ever after. It's because we long for that ourselves so much that we write it into our stories that we read these stories, we go watch these, these movies where we can like, I just want to escape from the mess that is reality in life. I want to escape and long for something, to see a future hope in some story and long for it myself. We long for it so much that we, we weave it into our own story making. We long for that, our happily ever after, a future that's freed from suffering and pain and death. We want it. And that's what Jesus draws us to here in his response. Yet the world that he draws us to, this future hope that he draws us to, this future resurrection that he draws us to is different than, than the world we know today. Again, see, the Sadducees only believed in the here and now. What is, is what is. Right? If I can see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, that's all I can comprehend. And Jesus is drawing their minds and drawing us who are listening to this today to a, a different reality, a different world, a different future, a different resurrection. Yes, we will still be ourselves, in this, but in this new reality, Revelation calls this a, a, a new heaven, a, a new earth that, that is one day promised to those who belong to him. In Revelation 21.1, the apostle John speaks of this. as he, he has this vision of the future which is to come, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. See, Jesus is drawing us to something that's beyond what our minds can comprehend, what these Sadducees' mind could comprehend, something that's greater and grander. And so in his answer, he says a few things. One, yes, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. Secondly, he's like, the marriage relationships that you're asking about, Sadducees, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. Thirdly, he addresses this, this idea that we're going to be like, like angels, meaning most likely we're never experiencing death again. Now, we don't become angels, Jesus says. He didn't say that. He says we're going to share similarities, but we're still going to be distinct from them. This future hope awaits only those whose, whose faith is in Christ alone. Jesus offers eternal life to, to any, this life, this future glory, this future hope, to any who turn from their sin and turn in faith to him. For those, eternal life awaits, but for those who reject Christ, eternal death awaits. And it's not a death of non-existence, but it's an eternal death bearing the wrath of God for your sin and rebellion. 
And so I cannot speak of the future hope without calling any who have not repented and turned from their sin and turned in faith to Jesus to do so today, to come find eternal life and joy forever in Christ and Christ alone. Come see Jesus as the only one who is the answer and the solution and the remedy to the deep questions of your soul. Though we don't know all that awaits us in this this new heaven and this new earth, we, we know this, though, that whatever pleasures we experience and enjoy in this life will be transcended beyond our imagination in the life to come. Jonathan Edwards says it well. He says, In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any pleasure here. Here's, here's what he's saying. He's, here's what Jesus is saying. He says, this, this is Matt Hurrian's dumbed-down version of anything Jonathan Edwards says. No one will be disappointed in any way as they experience the future hope, the future resurrection, as they experience life forever in heaven with Christ. As beautiful and awesome as marriage is in life today, or as beautiful and awesome as it is meant to be, it is but a picture of what God gives us of our future union with Christ. That the church is the bride of Christ. That Jesus is the bridegroom. This is the union we have with Jesus Husbands and wives will fail each other on this, on this earth. I'm the poster child for the, for the imperfect husband. But what we will experience one day is a perfect marriage with Jesus, who is the perfect husband, and the church, the bride, who is completely cleansed of all her flaws. Danny Aiken says it this way in regard to this future marriage with Christ in the church. He says, our relationship with Jesus and with all of our brothers and sisters will be so intense and so filled with love and affection that all earthly marital bliss will seem shallow and small in comparison. See, Jesus is saying, Sadducees, you're understanding marriage in an earthly sense. He's saying, God gave us marriage to just reflect and be a shadow of that which is to come in this future resurrection, this future hope when the church will be married to Christ, the husband. And so he's like, he's trying to draw our hearts and our affections upward beyond to a, a God who is transcendent, who is beautiful and lovely and glorious. And what's Jesus hang all of this on? Well, he, he hangs it on divine power. The power of God who reigns over life and death. This reality that God is God of the living, not of the dead. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He beats them on their own turf. He says, okay, Sadducees, who only follow the books of Moses, let's see what Moses actually wrote. I love that Jesus just, okay, let's go. Let's go there. Let's go see what, what the scriptures say. This is pulling back to when Jesus said to them, like, you don't know the scriptures. You, stu- you, you spent your life studying the, the five books of, of Moses, the books of the law, and you don't know what they said. Because here's a clear example that God is God of the living, not the dead, of, of a text that points to a future life with God forever. So he quotes here Exodus 3 and Moses' experience with God at the, the burning bush where God appeared to Moses and revealed his name. 
And so he, God gives Moses his name. I am. I am. I am who I am. I am the self-existent one. This is my name. And God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. So God is speaking here to Moses in Exodus 3 in the present tense regarding three individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who were physically dead. But he doesn't say, God doesn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God. They are spiritually alive with me right now, Moses. I am their God. I do not lose any who belong to me. Well, hope there is in that reality that God does not lose any who belong to him. That those who belong to God are never lost again. This is the hope in life and death. If we belong to God now through Christ, then we will belong to God for all eternity. And this reality hangs on the divine power of God in Christ, not in us. Tim Keller explains, he says, Notice that Jesus does not hang the hope of life after death on the the idea of an immortal part of us. Rather, he rests in the commitment of God to us. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a very powerful argument for life after death. We have a God who cannot, at our death, scrap that which is precious to him. This is God who reigns over life and death. He is the God of the living, not the dead. This is the story we tell. A God who's faithful, who is lovely, who is majestic and holy and filled with grace and mercy. A God who redeems and reigns over life and over death itself. A God who one day will put death to death A God who meets the deep questions of the soul because he's your creator and because he's designed you to find joy and satisfaction and purpose in him, not in his creation. There's coming a day when, when the church, when the bride of Christ will be fully united to him, where we will live and experience joy like we've never experienced before. Joy unending. Joy that never runs out but continues to increase and grow and multiply each and every day throughout all of eternity, as best as I can even explain it in my human terms. We share this story of hope. We invite then all others to come find eternal life in a God who is a God of life. This is the invitation. This is the story we must tell. And this is the story we need to remember.